This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, I'm Tricia Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. If you have any ideas for books, please drop me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today's a guest for you is Karen Hole, and her book is Primer of Ecological Restoration published by Island Press in 2020. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me today. Let's start with, uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Well, I originally have degrees in biology. I did an undergraduate degree at Stanford University and then my PhD at Virginia Tech. Uh, I also did a postdoc at Stanford, which is when I started studying tropical forest restoration, which is one of my expertises. I have been a faculty on the faculty at the University of California, Santa Cruz in the Environmental Studies Department for about 25 years now. And throughout that time, I have taught a course on restoration ecology, and I have also done research on how to restore ecosystems. Particularly, I work a lot on tropical forest restoration in Latin America, and I also study how to restore ecosystems in California, in particular grasslands, riparian forests, and uh scrub habitat. Well, start with, uh, what was your motivation for writing this particular book? Well, it's sort of an interesting story that I actually started writing this book about 25 years ago. My husband likes to tease me about that um, when I was a postdoc. And at the time, there wasn't really a very good book on, there wasn't, there weren't any books on restoration ecology because it was a new field. And what happened was that as a postdoc, I was doing a lot of research and then I got into a faculty job and I got kind of uh, waylaid with all these other things I had to do. But as time went on and I continued teaching the course, I realized there was a need for for a book. And fortunately, um, Susan Gladowich, about five to seven years ago, the University of Minnesota, wrote a longer book on restoration ecology, which I used in my classes. But it was a, it was a quite long book. And my motivation for wanting to write this book was to write a book that was a good introduction or a primer to the topic that covered the broad field of ecological restoration, not just the ecology or one aspect, but that covered the full range of what you need to know for restoration, but also was short. And so my goal throughout this was to keep the book as short and inexpensive as possible so that it was accessible to a broad audience. And I view them being sort of two primary audiences. And one of them that I thought probably most about was the teaching audience. 
And so I thought it would be a great book for teaching restoration ecology because it's short and it's inexpensive. Um, the list price is $35 and I can give you the information to get, you can get a discount for 20% that gets you um, for $28. And I really tried to keep it um, as cheap as possible. And then I put a bunch of other materials that I can talk about later online. It also, by keeping it short, it means that professors who teach restoration ecology or ecological restoration, they tend to teach it slightly differently. And by having a short book that covers the topics, that gives them space in their course to be able to add additional readings, either about a specific ecosystem they're focusing on. If they are interested more in focusing on ecology, there's another great book from the Sir Island Press series, The Foundations of Restoration Ecology. And so they can complement that. And so my goal was to have this book that was very accessible and I missed there just the second audience I thought it might be useful for was to practitioners or just the general audience who was interested in getting an introduction to the field. And I've been pleased that um, so far there's actually been a couple of non-solicited reviews on Amazon from practitioners saying that they really found it to be a very useful book and uh, talked to some other practitioners who are recommending it. And so I was excited to hear that it was, seem to be received well by both those audiences. I've had the fortune to be able to use a draft of it in my own class one year, and then it came out just in time for me to use it this year. So I've been able to personally see it in the teaching setting, uh, but I hadn't, I appreciated that feedback from people who are practitioners. Oh, excellent. So this is for a little bit for everybody. So I, I, I don't even have to make up a first question here. It's uh, right near chapter one. Why restore ecosystems? Why? Why restore ecosystems? Well, there's a lot of reasons to restore ecosystems. And one of the main points that I make in the first chapter is that people do it for different reasons. And so some people, we restore ecosystems to provide certain services to people, like um, providing, you know, sequestering carbon, um, preventing flooding, you know, from wetlands, um, minimizing erosion and uh, improving water quality. You also, other people restore ecosystems because they want to conserve biodiversity. Some other people restore ecosystems because they want um, to get income from it, certain products that you might get from timber and things like that. And so there's a lot of different motivations. Some people restore ecosystems because it's legally mandated. And so one of the key points I make in those first chapters of the first couple of chapters deal with like, why do we need to restore ecosystems and what, how do we define restoration is that those definitions are variable. And so it's really important at the beginning of the project to decide to agree with the different stakeholders, people involved in the project, what are your primary goals for the specific project and then measurable objectives so that then you can use those to evaluate your project later because there are a lot of different reasons to restore ecosystems and people don't always have the same ones. Oh, that's a good point. Well, I'll tell you the interest in my book is that, um, yeah, my, my master's degree in landscape architecture, my my, one of my projects was uh, restoring the hammocks here in the Florida Keys and uh, learning more about that and, and its uh, relationships to wildlife and, you know, for everybody, it's really important. So um, in your chapter two, you define restoration. What is defining restoration? There's a lot of different terms that are used in the restoration and people use the term restoration differently. And so in that chapter, I cover different definitions and how different people use them in that context so that we have a sort of level playing field so everybody understands that from the outset. And what I, I don't tend to be a super strict in vocabulary myself because I don't feel like 
I can't tell everybody how to use the term restoration, which is why I mostly advocate that people define how they're using the term restoration for their project. And so that's what I was saying earlier, that they need to define what are the goals of your project? Is the, is the goal of your project to restore something that resembles pre-disturbance ecosystems? Is your goal to restore a specific endangered species of plant or animal? Is your goal to uh, restore a functioning ecosystem that will minimize, you know, improve water quality? Um, is your goal to provide recreational areas to people that they can come visit the ecosystem? And so there's the other thing I do with the definitions is there was a document that came out this past year called the second, was the second edition of the Society for Ecological Restoration Standards. And they also went through some definitions of how they define restoration and other associated terms like rehabilitation, a reclamation, uh, landscape, forest landscape restoration. And I've tried to make sure that the terminology that I use in the book is consistent with that that came out this year in the Society for Ecological Restoration, which the acronym is SUR in the SUR standards, because there are so many different definitions floating around. Do you have a case study of anything that you've worked on and, and how you, uh, you know, try to work to define a restoration for a project? Um, well, maybe one of the things that I do for the book is that um, I actually, I mentioned I have a bunch of online materials. And so one of the things that I did in the book, this is a little bit off topic, but I'll probably covered at some point here, is that. Um, I have eight case studies that I actually wrote up for the book that bring a lot of the general principles in the book together. But those particular, um, those um, case studies, sorry, my computer is, um, those case studies are um, online. They're on the book website at Island Press. And so they have color photos. And so those provide a great um, example of, different types of case studies. And by putting them online, it keeps the cost of the book down. But so I'll just pick one of those case studies. Um, for instance, just to think of one, the Elwha Dam removal. Um, the Elwha Dam removal was in is in the state of Washington, and two very large dams were removed from the Elwha River, which is in Olympic National Park. And so the goals of that particular restoration were multifold. One of them was to restore the, the primary... Um, goal was to restore the natural flow pattern of the river and that was to restore the salmon runs was one of the one of the main reasons for doing it the other reason is that there's a native uh, native american tribe that's located there and they use the salmon resource and there was also a lot of important um, cultural sites for them and so it was restoring um, some of their cultural heritage they also had to contend with how do they restore the ecosystem and deal with all the sediment from the, behind the dam and so that was part of it too but so they were really looking at it from how do we restore historic river flows and river processes, but not only for the ecosystem, but also for the people who live there. Oh, interesting. Um, so you get into, we're just going down a list here, you know, project planning. How do you start all of this process? <laughs> I mean, you've got stakeholders, you've got, you know, academics, um, maybe some landscape architects. How does, how do you do the project planning? Well, that's what we talk about in the book there is the different steps that you need to do. As I, we've just talked about setting clear goals, um, thinking about who's going to pay for things, what legislation is involved, what permits are involved. Uh, and we go through the second two chapters, deal with project planning and monitoring and adaptive management. 
And that's kind of the nuts and bolts. How do I run a project? And, you know, thinking about, you know, during the project planning, who do I need to involve? I really emphasize the importance of including stakeholders and also um, thinking about what the monitoring is going to look like, who's going to do what different tasks, what resources do I need and what the timeline is for that project. And so we go through that all in the project planning. And then in the monitoring and adaptive management, we think about, you know, how would I monitor this? how, you know, it's importance of setting trigger points. If I don't meet this certain target, then we need to take corrective action. And how do I adaptively manage the project? And so that's what those two chapters kind of talk about as that process is. And again, I go through this fairly quickly. It's fairly short um, chapters. Uh, in, the, in those chapters, as with all my chapters, I talk about, I have additional references. And there's another great book from the Sir. Um, uh, Island, the Society for Ecological Restoration Island Press have a restoration series. And there's another one in there by um, Rieger and Stanley, where they actually have a whole book on project planning and management. And so if people are using my book and they're really more on the practitioner side and they want to think about how to do a project, then I say, okay, well, here's another reading that you could do, or here's some other readings that I would suggest since I try to cover, as I said, a broader suite of topics, but not in quite as much depth. So I add these additional um, recommended readings that if people want to focus more in a certain area, then they would know where to go look for more information. Oh, that sounds awesome. So it's not a book. It's, it's also a reference book too. Yes. And, and that's what I was saying. Um, I really, what I tried to do was create a book that was sort of a launching point. I mean, the whole, the book as a whole, it's in short format and the text is only about um, a little over 150 pages plus a glossary and index. And so the idea was to, to, to have something that would give people who wanted to know something about ecological restoration, a, you know, a, a thorough and rigorous read, but that wasn't too long and didn't go off into the weeds too much. And so that was one of the challenges of like what not to include. But what I tried to do was to provide ways for people to then go look in more information at what they were most interested in. And so some of the ways that I did that was by providing additional suggested references. I also, as I mentioned, have a lot of uh, resources on the website. Um, the book website, it's islandpress, one, all one word, dot org, uh, forward slash primer hyphen ecological hyphen restoration. And there, um, I have, as I said, eight case studies that go into more detail and I reference them throughout the book and they illustrate different points, but it helps people to integrate the concepts from the different chapters. So uh, my goal there, again, as I said, was to try to integrate the concepts and also by putting them online, I could put in different color figures, other link to resources for those. I also have some additional slides online and, and photos that people could use if they wanted to teach. And then for people who are using it in a teaching context, I also have um, a list of sort of other resources and questions for discussion and reflection that you could use if you're teaching a class and things, that, different exercises you might do if you were using this in the class context. And one of the things I've actually been working on recently is right now, there's a huge demand for online teaching because of COVID. And so I've actually just sent a note out to a bunch of restoration ecologists that I know, people who teach, and I'm trying to put together a spreadsheet of videos related to restoration that people could use if they were interested in seeing, having more visuals, because those of us who are teaching virtually 
can't necessarily get people out to the field right now. So that's been something I've been working on in the last week or so. And I plan to continue to update these online resources. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's really awesome right now with everybody probably going to be staying at home at least through uh, and teaching school through December. At least, Um, yeah. At least, yeah. So, okay. Well, this is an easy one. Applying ecological knowledge to restoration. Uh, What ecological knowledge do I need and how do I apply it to restoration? This was a tough one because there's a lot of ecological knowledge you could use. This particular chapter, chapter five, I talk about some basic concepts in ecology and and trying to get some science behind restoration. So I talk a bunch about succession, which is the process by which ecosystems recover and different models of succession. I also talk about thinking about how, you know, what your ecological model is of the ecosystem and who connects to whom, you know, how do the fauna and the flora, or if you're working in a river, how do the physical processes work? I also talk about some ecological principles at the landscape scale Things like, um, you know, connectivity and how you can connect different habitats. And so it's kind of a quick dive into some of what I think are some of the most ecological, important ecological principles. And then in the next series of chapters after this general ecology chapter, they're entitled you know, Landform and Hydrology, Soil and Water Quality, um, Get into Invasive Species, Revegetation and Fauna. And those each of those chapters still has a bunch of ecology in it. But they're really focused specifically on how do you restore these different physical and biological processes. Um, and, you know, with landform and hydrology and soil and water quality, I'm talking both about terrestrial but also aquatic systems, things like wetlands and rivers. And then, you know, with, with revegetation, we talk a lot about how do you plant, you know, how do you, how do you reintroduce plant species? And so there's also ecology in each of those chapters, but with different aspects ecosystem. Well, how does then, you've got the next couple chapters, how does this all play together? You've got landform and hydrology, soil and water quality. Uh, What can students and practitioners learn from uh, these next couple chapters? What are you you talking about here? I'm talking a lot here about physical processes. And so how do you get the soils right? How do you get the topography how, you know, different abiotic, what we consider abiotic factors. A lot of the hand, landform and hydrology, there's some about how do you get, you know, your terrain right in terrestrial systems. A lot of that chapter focuses on aquatic systems, in particular rivers, wetlands, lakes. How do you um, restore the flow regimes, that, which are critical? Um, if you don't get the soil and you don't get the water right to begin with in the flow regimes, then it's really hard to get the right plants and animals back. And so that's why I start with the physical processes. And so I try to, as succinctly as possible, talk about, you know, for instance, restoring flow regimes in rivers and channel meandering patterns in rivers. And, you know, the different types of like rocks you'd have on the bottom of the rivers and how you get those processes back. Um, In the soil and water quality chapter, I talk more about restoring soil nutrients, and then also how do you reduce um, elevated nutrient levels both in soils and also in aquatic systems, which often lead to what's called eutrophication when you have too many nutrients going in there, and that's one of the things that needs to be restored. How could you go about restoring those um, the the physical processes? So is is there 
this is just for my personal project. It, what is, is the connection between land and water and, and how does how does ecological restoration work between the two of them, like on coastlines, et cetera, since you're in California and I'm in Florida and coastline development is so, um, uh, you know, destroyed a lot of, a lot of the environment, not just for the animals, but for the humans too. Um, so I tell my students that it, you have to get things on right on the land first. I would argue in most cases, because, so much of the nutrients and the water flow patterns start in terrestrial systems and then they run into aquatic systems. And so the hardest things I, I tell students, I don't even think you can really restore lakes. You have to restore the land above it and the rivers that run into it because otherwise, you know, all the nutrients that are going in there, if you're managing nutrients at the level of a lake, then you're just, and the same thing as in, in true estuaries, you, you're managing it. You can't control it. You need to restore upstream so that you don't have the same amount of soils and nutrients coming in. And so they're integrally linked. You have to, um, you, I, when I'm talking about them, I have to separate them out a little bit, but I try to integrate them as much as possible because absolutely getting things right on the land, um, has a huge impact. And we see that at the coast, you know, the land sea interface along our coast is that you have to um, you know, and one of the most important things to restore are wetlands because they do help to take up sediments that are in nutrients that are coming from the land and then help to create, they provide all sorts of ecosystem services to humans, like, you know, preventing flood control, helping to prevent shoreline erosion. And so we also, there's some examples of you know, how you go about restoring the topography and the water flow into wetlands. But Definitely the movement of nutrient and water and sediments across the landscape links and organisms too, but particularly the physical processes links the, tr the land and the, you know, the coastline and then out into the ocean. And there are efforts to restore marine ecosystems, but if you look at most marine restoration projects, most of them are focused right on the coastline. Things like, you know, oyster reefs and coral reefs, wetlands, they're all right at that interface because, um, you can't really restore the ocean and you've got to restore what's coming into it. And there's other management things like overfishing that you can manage too. That's true. Uh, that's a good point. So, um, and now I know that invasive species, it's a whole big argument, native versus naturalized, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, what, what's your, what's this chapter about in the invasive species? What's your definition? Um, well, invasive species, and I do start out with some of the terminology, there's, there's, there's a distinction I like to make that, you know, people talk about native versus non-native or exotic species, and that tends, that has to do with the origin of the species. One of the challenges there is what the time frame is, like when, at what time period do you consider a species invasive? Like in the United States, we tend to say that a species that has come after European colonization, that's an a non-native species. So, so there's the, the, there's the origin of it. Invasive species are a subset of the non-native species, and those tend to be the species that spread quickly and tend to outcompete native species um, and that have a really damaging effect on the environment. And so I, I like to make that distinction because, you know, they say, for instance, like for plant species, there's all sorts of plants that we plant in landscaping. And a lot of them, you know, they say where they are, they don't cause harm. Um, but it's the ones that are really invasive and spread that really cause the problems. And we all you know, know examples of both invasive plants and animals and diseases that have had huge impacts. And so 
Um, I talk about some of those examples and why we're concerned about those particular invasive species that are causing you know big problems. I mean, in Florida, you know things like um, melaleuca tree species. There's all the issues of uh, all the uh, large snakes that have been released in the Everglades. There's all sorts of examples of invasive species here in California. We have, again have all sorts of invasive species, and so then we talk about ways that we could potentially manage those species. Um, you know how you could control invasive species, and also when you need to control them. Because if you're going to be effective in controlling invasive species, you should really prevent their entry in the first place. And examples, good examples of that, are Australia and New Zealand that have very strict legislation preventing species from entering the country. Whereas in the United States, we aren't quite as we haven't been quite as effective at preventing them from entering. And I also talk about some of the controversies. I mean, some people there are, there are arguments for why you might want to use certain non-native species in restoration. Um, you might use them as a nurse plant to begin with, but you want to make sure those are non-native species that don't invade elsewhere or don't dramatically alter the ecosystems. But there are some you know, interesting examples where people have planted certain species that are commercially valuable, like pines in certain cases. And then if you log them out, they might actually help to pay for the restoration. So I, I talk a bunch about a bunch of issues related to invasive species um, in that chapter. Oh, yeah, I was thinking, oh, you know, one of my things was uh, Hawaii. Has Hawaii done a good job of, they're pretty strict. Are they, um, are they pretty good at trying to keep out invasive species? Um, unfortunately, Hawaii is one of the probably worst places for invasive species. Most species that you associate with Hawaii are not native. And they've had Unfortunately, the invasions came before they really had strict um, prevention of invasive and invasive species. And so they've actually lost about half of their bird fauna in Hawaii. And that's largely due to the fact that it's an island ecosystem. And the only native um, mammalian, the only native mammal in Hawaii is a bat. There's no predators. And so a lot of island ecosystems have evolved without predators. And so the, the birds aren't afraid of predators. And so it happened as, as different predators have been introduced, they've been really susceptible. The other problem is they also have um, avian malaria, which is an, an introduced disease. And so actually Hawaii is, has huge problems with invasive species. And so it's very difficult. I have some um, colleagues who work at, at the University of Hawaii and trying to do restoration. And it's hard because their forests are so dominated by invasive species. Well, this is a side question. Um, do you cover, how, how do you get rid of invasive species? Are there some, you know, chemical or non-chemical or, or what do you advocate for to, once you find it, how do you get rid of it? Um, that's kind of a hard question to answer in general, because it depends on, are you working talking about plants or animals or diseases and which ones? It's very much species specific. Um, and I talk about the controversy of whether you use chemicals or not. Um, I think most land managers ideally would take what's called an integrated pest management approach, which is to try to use as many options as possible that are not chemicals to begin with. Um, and there are ways to do that through um, biological control, introducing predators of those species that might control those species, manual removal, sometimes restoring the disturbance regime. Like if it's a species, you know, you've altered the wetland hydrology and then you, um, restore or flow that can get rid of some of the species that are adapted to more to drier or upland conditions. And so it's really species specific. And so in the chapter, I talk about 
sort of different approaches. And I talk about examples of, of species, but it's hard to say for every single one. And so actually one of the exercises that I have my students do, and I suggest in my list of questions is to have, you know, each person in the class pick an invasive species and sort of look into what its effects are, you know, where it came from and different control methods, because it really depends on, on the species involved, um, you know, how you, how you control it. The mo the key thing, as I said earlier, is the most effective way to control an invasive species is not to let it invade in the first place. Once you, um, there's a figure in the books showing the invasion cycle. And by the time we often start controlling species, they're so well established that it's almost impossible to control them. And so in some cases, you just have to try to manage to keep them, reduce their abundance. Reduce their footprint. Um, so now you go on to revegetation. Can, uh, how do you do the revegetation? And does that help to push back out some of the invasive species? That's the hope is that usually in, in systems that are invaded is that you do, you shouldn't just control. Sometimes you can control the invasive species and there'll be a native seed bank and it'll come back on. So more often than not, you need to plant species. And so in the revegetation chapter, I talk about um, different ways to do revegetation, whether you just, I mean, the first question to ask in restoring an ecosystem is, do I need to plant species or will they colonize on their own? And so that's an important step because there are some, where, where some ecosystems like where I work in Costa Rica, where um, some tropical forests, if they haven't been heavily disturbed, if you stop grazing or fire or whatever the agriculture agricultural use was, they'll actually recover pretty quickly on their own. So that's a first step. Then if that doesn't work, then thinking about how you can manage the ecosystem so that it doesn't, um, how do you manage the ecosystem so that you speed up the process. And so is that by clearing around naturally established seedling, which is called assisted natural regeneration or sort of assisting regeneration, or do you need to seed species or plant species? And I talk about different methods for introducing the species, the plants, and also other considerations like, you know, do you use any non-native species? Do you, um, what are your seed sources? You know, how locally do you collect? Um, and also some propagation guidelines for, for doing that. So, 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 so that's what I go through is, you know, how do you, do we need to revegetate? And then how do we, um, you know, how would we go about doing that for different types of ecosystems or what are some of the considerations? Oh, well, let me ask you now, um, when I did my restaurant, just, uh, research project, um, when you're choosing to do revegetation, uh, do you go back and uh, use, like I found old old uh, studies about uh, abundant studies from the Florida Keys way back in the early 1900s. How do you like start and what point do you start at, I guess, for each project to choose some plants if you're going to plant it? So actually in the, one of the early chapters when we were talking about project planning, um, one of the things I didn't mention, I talk a lot in that chapter, thinking about what your reference ecosystem is. And so it also depends, again, if your goal is to restore a semblance of the predisturbance condition, then there's a lot of different sources of information. You could go back, like you said, to historic records. You could pick a nearby ecosystem of a similar type and say, that's going to be my reference. You could... Um, also, you know, go back to historic writings for barium specimens. And so typically in choosing plant species, assuming that your goal is to restore a similar ecosystem would be to look at some of those reference ecosystems, see what species are available, 
and then try to use a mix of those species. If your goal is to restore a specific endangered species or group of species, then maybe focus on those as a target. I can say from experience that practitioners tend to pick the species from the choices that tend to be easier to propagate and that are more likely to establish. And so that's one of the things that tends to happen because you're trying to be successful. And so the species that are easier to work with tend to get prioritized. Um, if you're trying to um, include the local community and you wanna provide income, some of the reforestation projects I work on, you need to think about you know, what species does the community value? What might be valuable from a sense of um, providing income from timber or firewood or some sort of fruit? And so there's a lot of considerations depending on the goals of the project and you know, what, what resources you have available. So now that we've done plants, animals, land, hydrology, we're going on to fauna. Uh, what can you tell us about that? So with fauna restoration, there's sort of three approaches to restoration. One is, first of all, is to try to reduce the disturbances in the first place that are causing faunal declines. This might be controlling hunting, controlling certain pesticides in the environment. Besides that, then there's sort of two more active restoration approaches that are used for fauna, which I cover in the book. One is to try to restore the habitat so that it's suitable for the fauna. The other one is to actually reintroduce the fauna. So with restoring faunal habitat, you think about, okay, I want to restore certain um, types of birds. Do I need to restore vegetation structure? Do I need to make sure they have nesting habitat? Do I need to, you know, what are their food sources? Things like that. And so that's one approach. Then there's a, then there are other um, programs that either are really focused on a single species, like, and then they're, um, they're either translocating species or they're capture, captive breeding them and reintroducing them. And so those might be species like um, the California condor, which was on the brink of extinction, and they've reintroduced them and they've um, done captive breeding and then reintroduce them into wild. And they do what's called a soft release. They provide food to the animals. And so we go through some of those methods related to um, different types of restoration that are done for fauna. Well, now all this boils down to, I think you're getting down to chapter 11, uh, legislation. So how does this help or hinder the uh, restoration process and how do you get it done? Yeah, so my last two chapters are on legislation and how do we pay for restoration. And a lot of restoration ecology courses or books focused on just the ecology. And these two were really important, these chapters for me to include, because when I have practitioners come to my class, the first thing that if you ask them, you know, what, what, what do you need to know for a project or what's your biggest obstacle in getting a project started? This is at least in California. They'll tell you getting permits and, you know, they have to get permits to be able to go out and do a wetland restoration. You know, they have to, you know, get a clean water act permit because they're altering a waterway. They need to, um, if they're working with endangered species, they need another permit. Um, I have a, one of my guest lecturers who talked about the, um, the, a wetland restoration project and there's like 15 different permits that they needed. And so understanding the legislation and I mean, legislation is important because it can help to provide a motivation for restoration. For instance, like in the United States, you have to, um, you have to um, re reclaim surface mines after you've done your mining or you need to, the no net loss of wetlands means that you're supposed to create wetlands. And so it can provide a motivation. It also can affect how you do the restoration. And so understanding the different legislation involved and the different approaches is important. 
What was challenging about writing this chapter was that I really tried to make sure that my book was international. And since it's hard to talk about legislation in different countries. So I necessarily tried to offer examples from different countries um, and did that and talked about general approaches as opposed to getting into the nitty gritty details from any given country. I mean, obviously there's a bias in the book towards the United States because that's where I'm from. But in writing this book, I really tried to make sure that I picked examples from different ecosystems and from different countries worldwide. And I was fortunate in the writing of it to have um, four or actually five very generous colleagues who read the entire draft book for me, which was great. And one's from Brazil and one's from Spain and one lives much of the year in France. And so they really were good about pointing out to me when I was pretty biased about you know, having a certain geographic bias. And um, I, I really tried to be international, but they were they were super helpful in making some suggestions about different case studies or examples I could use. And so that's what I tried to do in the legislation was try to provide examples from different countries, um, realizing that I couldn't cover this all in a short book. And again, that's one of the exercises that I recommend in class and I have my students do, which is to pick... I. I haven't picked a case study that they carry throughout the book, but then think about, you know, what laws affect this restoration project that might either motivate it or require me to get permits and think about how I might do the restoration. Uh, which is just as important as anything else. So, but I'm going to go back to, so how do we pay for all this? That's uh, always the question. Who's going to pay for it? What's their motivation? How do we, how do you get it done at the final step? So I talk about different examples and I have a figure talking about, you know, who pays for it. Is it particularly if there is somebody who's clearly responsible for the damage versus if, you know, in some cases, certain acts like the Mining Reclamation Act or like water pollution, if it's a certain entity that you can hold responsible, then ideally you would hold them responsible and have them do the restoration. In other cases where there's not um, a clear, you know, party who caused the damage, which is more often the case, we talk about different approaches, like, you know, a lot of it gets paid for by taxpayer, by public funds. Sometimes foundations do it. There are different uh, uh, projects, people trying to think about how can we make restoration pay. Um, one of my colleagues I work with a lot in Brazil has done a lot of work looking at, you know, how could you, looking at different payment methods, uh, if you plant certain valuable trees early in restoration, could you log some of the fast growing trees to get some money? Could you get payments for you know, carbon or water at the outset? Um, thinking about different ways to be able to pay for it. And so that's what we're talking about. There's different models of quantifying ecosystem services. There's actually a video that I linked to where the Nature Conservancy, for instance, for coral reef restoration is trying to get the tourism industry to pay for it because of the importance of the tourism industry, because of the services that the coral reefs provide. And so this is definitely one of the biggest factors is, you know, how are we going to pay for restoration? And there are different models that have been used. And so that's what I talk about in this chapter. Oh, excellent. Um, so I always like to ask your favorite something. Uh, can you tell us about your, one of your favorite case studies or a project that you've worked on and, and why it was important to you? Oh, um, my favorite case study? Um, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think there's a lot of interesting case studies that I talk about in the book. I talked about the Elwha Dam, which I think is a really cool restoration project. Another one, one another one of my case studies in Florida that I talk about, um, and all my case studies in the book, um, uh, whoops, um, all my case studies in the book 
uh, are co-authored with somebody from that ecosystem. And so one of my case studies is about the Kissimmee River in Florida, which you may be familiar with, which I think that's a fascinating restoration project because um, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers channelized that um, that uh, river in uh, the 1970s to try to straighten it out to because people tend to not like wetlands and they didn't want flooding. And then we've spent nearly a billion dollars and um, since like 30 years trying to restore that by restoring back the natural meandering pattern of the river. And so the scale of that case study is really interesting. And the fact that when you do restore channel meandering, that um, that works um, really well. Um, and it actually, they, they have been able to do a lot of restoration there. Uh, other case studies that you know I talk in the book, um, I talk about the Sacramento River in California, which is another large scale case study that I've personally done research on. And I think that's an interesting case study from a standpoint of stakeholders, because they've really had to work with the farmers to figure out what's feasible along the river and do a lot of negotiations to try to find you know, ways to restore the river uh, patterns and and the channel patterns and the riparian forests, but not increase flooding on the farmer's land. And so, so much of um, restoration projects is not about just the ecology, it's about the stakeholders and the social. And so I try to talk about in the different chapters, you know, who the different people involved are and how they manage to work through those um, cases. And, and not all... Um, not all the cases from the United States. There's also a really interesting one that um, I wrote with some colleagues about like reintroducing the Galapagos tortoise and the Galapagos islands. And that's interesting because you have uh, some really interesting trophic interactions because um, uh, the tortoise disperses seeds of a cactus and then the tortoise is negatively affected by um, some of the grazing animals and just all the different different species interactions in that system are really interesting. So it's not just about reintroducing the tortoise, but all the interactions that the tortoise has with other fauna and flora in the ecosystem. Okay, I'll give you another one. So out of all these plants and, and uh, plant communities, uh, I have time. I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite plant community? I don't know. I mean, I like, I, I know one of the things I love about living in California is we have so many different ecosystems. Um, and so that's really neat because you can go like, there's just a lot of different ecosystems. Um, obviously I work in tropical forests and they're really cool ecosystems, but for me, I think rather than a single ecosystem, it's kind of the contrast between ecosystems. And one of the fascinating things for me as an ecologist is I do work in tropical forests, which are like some of you know the wettest ecosystems, but then I also work in California where we have this long dry season. And so it's just seeing how you know things are not generalizable and just the importance of understanding the ecology to design a restoration project. I, I couldn't really say that I have a favorite ecosystem, but I like I feel fortunate to have had the opportunity to work in a bunch of different ecosystems because it makes me think differently about, and more broadly, I would say about how you, how ecosystems work and how you do restoration. Oh, interesting. Um, I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this book. It's uh, like I said, my master's degree was landscape architecture, but it, it goes along with uh, some of the work that, that we, we touch on too. And I think this book will be a, a great interest to them and to architects too, because they, they impact the environment as well. Um, the very first time, actually, I taught restoration. I teach now in an environmental studies department, so most of the students that I have are interested in environmental studies or ecology majors. Um, but when I was doing my PhD at Virginia Tech many years ago, the first restoration ecology I cl- 
class I taught was my last year of my PhD at Virginia Tech that does have an architecture and a landscape architecture program. And so it was interesting because I had half ecology and half landscape architectures students in my class. And it was interesting to, that they brought you know, different perspectives to how they thought about ecosystems and ecosystem restoration. So um, so yeah, that kind of opened my eyes to the, the importance because my own training is in ecology about how kind of the overlap between landscape architecture and ecology and how they come together in, in some restoration projects. Oh yeah, it's all, it's all interrelated. That's so cool. Um, well, Karen, you know, thank you so much for being here today. I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, can you tell our audience what uh, cool projects or conferences, what are you working on next? Well, normally at this time of the year, I would probably be in Costa Rica doing my research. But um, of course, I am at my house for because of the COVID epidemic. Um, but that's been great because it's given me the opportunity to work on some other things. I've been actually writing up some of the results of my research. I mostly, this is my first and only book, and I mostly write papers. The other thing I've been really involved in recently, and I don't know if you're aware of these, but there's a number of different um, really large campaigns to plant trillions of trees across the planet. And uh, there's one from the World Economic Forum and some of the conservation organizations. And recently in like January, even President Trump signed on, there's a bill in, in the United States. And so um, it sounds like tree planting is a great thing, and there's a lot, a lot of potential benefits from tree planting. But one of my goals as an ecologist and restoration ecologist has been trying to put a little more science into these efforts and, and increase the success rates. Because if people just go out and kind of willy-nilly planting trees and they aren't part of a more thoughtful restoration project and they aren't maintained, then we could be spending a lot of money and either having the trees die or having them planted, say, in grasslands or having them not have the desired effects. And so one of the things I've been spending a lot of time recently I've been writing about is, you know, how could we do this tree planting more thoughtfully and think about it more as how do we restore forests? How do we restore people's livelihoods from trees? And some of the same concepts that I talk about in my book. And so I've been working both with academic audiences, but I've also been working with you know, organizations like Conservation International. And right now I'm reviewing some proposals for the World Economic Forum Trillion Trees Campaign. And so that's been a big focus of my time in the last, um, over the last um, few months. Oh, excellent. I think that uh, the way the, uh, the planet is going, that uh, there's always going to be plenty of work, I think, for us to fix all the, all the ecology that we've uh, disturbed. It. Yeah, I, I wish I was out of business. I would love to be put out of business, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime <laughs> soon, unfortunately. But I keep trying to do what I can, both through my own work and um, working with conservation organizations, practitioners, and also through my teaching to try to um, move things in the right direction. We'll, we'll try to put you out of work. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> um, well, again, for our audience, uh, thank you again, Karen, for being here today. Um, the book is... Primer for Ecological Restoration by Karen Hole, published by Island Press in 2020. And can you give us that uh, website again where they can go to for references? Yes, that would be, I'd be happy to do that. So again, you can go to islandpress.org and um, that's their website. And you could just Google Primer of Ecological Restoration too, but the website is islandpress.org forward slash Primer. P-R-I-M-E-R hyphen ecological hyphen restoration. And the other thing I should tell listeners is that if you purchase it from the Island Press website, you can also provide it, you know, get it at various online online sellers. But if you 
buy it from Island Press. It's normally $35 and they'll ask you for a code. And if you type in the um, discount code in all caps, PRIMER, P-R-I-M-E-R in all caps, you get a 20% discount. And so that gives you an incentive. So it's actually only $28. Um, so that gives you an incentive to buy it from the uh, from the Society for Ecological Rest, sorry, the Island Press website. And what's nice when you're there, you could also browse some of their other ecological restoration books. Um, there, I really, uh, one of the reasons I publish with um, Island Press is that they do publish a lot of environmental books and they're a nonprofit publisher. And so I think it's great to support them. So, and, and you get a discount if you buy it there. So I oh. recommend you do that. Excellent. Okay. So everybody- and you can also on that webpage, um, if you go on the sidebar, there's a, all the resources that I was talking about earlier, if you're going to be using, it's particularly useful if you're going to be using this for teaching, but they might be of interest to other people too. Oh, for professionals too. Oh, excellent. Okay. I'll say that right. Let me say this right. The Primer of Ecological Restoration um, by Karen Hole published by Island Press in 2020. And again, this is Tricia from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. If you have any ideas for books, please drop me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And thank you for listening today.